Hi, this is Hannah Nickenow, and you're listening to the Urban to Country podcast. Welcome to the Urban to Country podcast, a collection of inspiring and edifying conversations with amazing people. Our conversations cover everything from hunting and conservation to mindful living to how to be a good human. Basically, all the good stuff. Hey everyone, welcome to the Urban to Country podcast. This is episode 21 and I am your host, Marcus Strange. Thank you so much for joining me here today. I feel honored that you have taken the time to listen to this episode. It is a really good one with my new friend, Hannah Nickenow. Hannah is a sagebrush communication specialist for the Intermountain West Joint Venture, which is a really cool organization that she's going to tell us all about in this episode. We had a great conversation, and I'm excited for all of you to be able to hear it. As always, your support of the podcast means the world to me, so please rate, review, and subscribe to the Urban to Country podcast. It does make a difference. And now, enjoy my conversation with Hannah Nickenow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Urban to Country podcast. We are here in beautiful Bozeman, Montana for the Bozeman Conservation Convention. Uh, It's been a fun-filled morning so far. And I'm actually here with Hannah, and we're very excited to sit down and talk about uh, what her job is. And I'm actually not going to spoil anything. I'm going to let her tell you all about it. So Hannah, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? Tell them uh, who you are and who you work for. Awesome. Thank you. So I'm Hannah Nickenow, and I work for the Intermountain West Joint Venture. My title is Sagebrush Communications Specialist. So what is a joint venture? A joint venture is a program of the Fish and Wildlife Service. Our program exists within the Migratory Bird Division of the service, and we were created out of uh, the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. And that plan was established because uh, duck populations in the 80s were crashing all across the country. And joint ventures were established as a partnership mechanism to try to figure out a way to uh, get habitat conserved to help those duck populations rebound. And so in that time since, we've evolved. So the Intermountain West Joint Venture now does all bird, not just waterfowl. And even though, you know, we are bird-based, If you have good habitat for birds, you have good habitat for a lot of critters. So my staff, we're based in Missoula, Montana. We have a few people around the country and uh, we help bring partners together as far as federal, state, corporate, NGO, um, and private landowners to make conservation happen that's durable and uh, impactful. Wow, that is an amazing job. It sounds like it keeps you pretty busy. What's your background? How did you fall into this job? My background's in journalism, and I actually landed this job because I was interviewing the current head of my organization for a story about sage grouse and elk, and how um, elk, the the title of the story for the Elk Foundation uh, Bugle Magazine was Destinies Intertwined, and how sage grouse and elk, kind of if they both have good habitat, their destinies there are kind of intertwined, and that what w- if one goes, the other might might struggle as well. Cool. So were you, you were a journalist in Montana then? Yep. I had just been out of, just uh, graduated from the University of Montana journalism program and was kind of reaching around for careers that I could 
report on natural resources. Um, I was actually doing an internship in Costa Rica, uh, working oh, on. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, working on a newspaper down there. The newspaper went bankrupt. Oh um, no! <laughs> and I saw the job posting. The guy I'd interviewed at the joint venture uh, sent me an email. He's like, "If you can get back to Montana, we'd love to interview you." And I six years ago, I was lucky enough to land that job. That's amazing. So you've been with him for six years now, mm-hmm. and. What's that been like? I mean, making the transition from journalism to conservation, uh, that's got to be really fulfilling. So how's, how's that been? It wasn't hard in my case. I hadn't been doing kind of mass media journalism for a while. And to be able to transition to talk about what I'm passionate about with like what I think and what my organization is doing, you know, representing that as a great way to get conservation done and being able to advocate for that fully, that, you know, that transition wasn't hard. I've, I've primarily been working in sagebrush habitats. I'm from Wyoming and grew okay. up with 60,000 acres of BLM out my back door and wow. so to be able to champion you know full-heartedly the landscapes I love uh, that that's been a pretty sweet gig that's very cool where did that passion come from was it was it from growing up with what you said 60,000 acres at your back door were there other things that made you passionate about conservation I grew up in Wyoming. My family was military and we traveled around a bit, but kind of settled in Wyoming. Um, And we settled there because of public lands and fishing and hunting opportunities that my dad was seeking. Uh, I, you know, I was chasing his boot tracks uh, for as long as I can remember. I I was able to harvest my first antelope with him at the age of 12, Uh, but I deviated. Um, I was an exchange student in high school and I went abroad and I met crazy interesting people and I met vegetarians for the first time and they were talking about their love of wildlife and wanting to treat wildlife kindly and by choosing to not eat meat that's a way you can do that and so at 16 I was like I'm a vegetarian and (laughs) I quit hunting and fishing with my dad I you know I kind of left the lifestyle that he had raised me in and it wasn't until early college that he was able to beat into my head that hunting and fishing and taking responsibility upon yourself to harvest your own protein from the field that's the most organic free range healthy way that you could participate in wildlife and the conservation of it through hunting as part of the north american model that's cool you know i think your story is really interesting because i I love the, there's a quote that says, you know, the death of prejudice is travel. And once we get out there and we travel, then we start to see the world in a different way. We see all these different ways of doing things. We open ourselves up to, you know, new ideas and and sometimes better ways of doing things than we've been exposed to in the past, sometimes worse. And we learn from those too. But I think, I mean, you're, you're the kind of person that we need in conservation, somebody that, um, quite frankly, is unique. Um, I think sometimes too often we have, you know, middle-class American white guys like me, and I like to hunt. Like, I'm quite frankly a dime a dozen. But I think you're, just hearing your story, you, you bring this unique perspective to conservation that's so cool. And I, for one, am quite frankly glad that we have more people like you coming into conservation and making us a more diverse family. I think that's pretty awesome so yeah thanks for sharing your story that's pretty that's pretty amazing 
What? Yeah, and, and kind of like my story in ways I don't often see as it being very unique because, you know, I I am the typical raised in a hook and bullet family. Mm-hmm. Granted, you know, I, I kind of left and had to find my own way back. Um, but uh, I, I was, I've been listening to some other research and how uh, it is w- not very common for the fathers to take the daughters hunting. Mm. I was the eldest and I could keep up before my brother could. <laughs> so that's that's why I got it. And I know that's a pretty standard trend in those demographics, but trying to like having recognized that about like how I've been able to, you know, figure out the complex craft of hunting and fishing, uh, like seeing that in ourselves, that means like when we when we teach, when we pass on, like we need to try to find those people who are really outside those demographics so even though I maybe am a unique sliver of that like I've got to and I'm actively working to try to mentor people that don't grow up with kind of those those um, that foot up that I had that that kind of boost I had having grown up in that sort of family gotcha that's such a cool perspective tell me your job title one more time I'm trying to remember what it is sagebrush communications specialist okay so for a sagebrush communications specialist what does your day look like like when you go to the office what do you typically do so I am a desk jockey. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, I, I do get out into the field. I do travel a lot for work, but uh, often it's you know in the realm of airport hotels and conference rooms. Nice. But um, you know everyone th- everyone who wants to work in conservation imagines themselves, even myself being a communications person, out in the field, you know, writing stories, interviewing. Yeah. So much of it is happening indoors. So uh, kind of my my day is. I manage a number of websites and social media platforms for my sole organization, but we're, we're a partnership entity. So, you know, we are strengthened by the abilities of all the, all the folks that we work with in different agencies, different organizations. So a big part of what I do is trying to help leverage the super cool stories that maybe the, um, you know, the Nevada collaborative groups are, are creating. So I'm, I'm helping them write their stories. I do a lot of ghostwriting even. My name doesn't appear on a lot of stuff, yeah. um, but just trying to elevate those super interesting conservation stories beyond what people without communication staff can can get out there right it's funny that you say that because my biggest shock I've been in conservation officially as a a full-time employee for the last two years and the two things that surprised me the most was how little time I spend outside Uh, you know most of my day is spent inside behind a desk or in a building having a meeting somewhere it's not out in the field it's not glamorous you know hiking through the mountains and then the other part of it is that ghostwriting component I remember the first time my boss said hey will you write this for somebody else I was like can he write it himself and then it was like oh wait but we have a specific message and a lot of people just don't feel comfortable right they need that help and so that was a big surprise for me. Uh, what did you have any other surprises when you kind of made that transition from journalism to what you do now? Was there kind of like that? Oh man, I wasn't expecting this moment. How long and how careful you need to be when kind of 
checking your communications mm. with the different people who have a stake in it. Yeah. You know, certain terminologies put together can mean very different things in the science community than to a general public. And so making sure the scientists are happy with how their research is communicated, making sure like the leadership figures with how they're voicing um, their conservation and funding needs to political officials, like those nuances in communications are so delicate and so intense. And unlike journalism, often a journalist, you know, flies into a story, has a couple hours to pull it together and then publishes it. Like how hard it is for, you know, those journalists to be able to capture the full, full like spectrum of what they need of the story that's behind these conservation measures. Um, And that's also why like communications people like myself need to invest in relationships with journalists, Mm, Um, like kind of the field I came from to make sure that you know they've got all the resources and people available to them to try to paint that full story well that's cool that you you've been in both worlds now so you can really bridge that gap for your organization Uh, with the joint venture what are some of the big projects you guys are working on right now So I'll speak to my initiative specifically. Um, So it's called Partnering to Conserve Sagebrush Rangelands, partnersinthesage.com. And uh, we have an interagency agreement with the Bureau of Land Management. And uh, we have funding to try to put um, communications, science, and capacity in the ground in the right places to conserve sagebrush habitats. And, you know, we, we, we have been really involved talking about sage grouse and protecting sage grouse habitat but if you have good sage brush habitat that's good habitat for you know elk and uh, mule deer and pronghorn as well as the little little brown birds the LBBs yeah. um, and <laughs> uh, the small mammals and the lizards and the amphibians out there so we're trying again to do communications to try to get those stories out of really good sagebrush conservation work that's happening around the west and also to showcase those models of good conservation so that other places can hopefully learn from what they're achieving. Um, having good science that guides conservation and the, the land management so that it works across boundaries, across public and private for all the users of these working rangelands. Um, and then capacity. Often, you know, the Bureau of Land Management has great, uh, you know, field projects that they need to get done, but they're short-staffed, they're short-funded, they don't quite have the ability to get someone out into the field doing what they need to do. So, for example, we have a capacity position in southwest Montana where he sits in a BLM office, his contract is uh, held by the Nature Conservancy, like that's his employer, and there are another other f- a number of other funders that are helping make his position happen. So he can get out there, he can remove invasive trees where they're encroaching into sagebrush, he can restore wet meadows, was like green emerald islands in the sagebrush sea that so much wildlife depend on. Um, you know, he can mark fences so that sage grouse don't, you know, scissor themselves on them. Uh, he, he's this capacity that we're trying to get out there when agencies can't quite, you know, get what they need in the timely manner that some of those projects need to happen in. Wow. That is a lot of work. You guys are busy. Holy cow. Could you, just for the listeners, can you kind of explain two things? One, what a sage grouse is because um, I until I moved to Montana I had no idea what a sage grouse was and when somebody said it for the first time I imagined kind of like a rough grouse and then I went and looked it up online I was like 
holy cow, this is not the same thing at all. And then can you talk about the concept of an umbrella species? Because I think that's pretty critical to what we're talking about here. Perfect. Exactly. Umbrella species, you hit it spot on. So, so a sage grouse is the, so specifically what I'm talking about is the greater sage grouse. Um, they are a sagebrush obligate in that their entire life cycle is dependent on healthy sagebrush habitats. Um, they can't uh, survive in other places. Um, they are the largest of the grouse species, and what is most fascinating about them is their mating rituals. So they mm, go to these yeah. places called leks, uh, the same place these birds go every single year to dance. And they puff their chests out, they have these giant air sacs, the males have these giant air sacs, and they strut around and they, they uh, inflate and deflate their air sacs and like pump their wings in a way that makes this like amazing popping sound of like a cork coming out of a champagne bottle and they dance around and they're essentially trying to woo the females that are out kind of on the edges watching to see you know which male has the best moves um <laughs> and we're fortunate all of them think they do i'm just telling oh you that right gosh. now <laughs> they they think they're hot stuff and they're silly they are uh you know a species that um have very specific habitat needs yeah. and if we if we fracture that you know we're we're you know not having great numbers of sage grouse they, they their populations have a cyclical nature so they kind of go up and down um like a lot of other um small game species mm. um but as we lose sagebrush habitat as you know uh energy development goes in as roads and development break up the landscape um as uh, certain diseases come through and impact the birds um as conifers encroach into sagebrush habitat they make all these perches for raptors to stand on and predate upon sage grouse mm. they're they're a fantastic species but they're delicate they need they have very specific habitat needs and so we talk about them as an umbrella species because um if you imagine an umbrella it can cover if you know if the umbrella is strong it can cover a lot of space it can it can uh cover a lot of habitat mm -hmm. so sage grouse you know what's good for the bird is good for the herd that's the best slogan ever that <laughs> the is ranchers so great. like have it good so if yeah. you have healthy sage grouse if you have healthy sage brush it works for responsible grazing it works for what mule deer need it keeps migration corridors intact for pronghorn um so if you can keep that healthy system um that sage grouse by doing conservation for a sage grouse it can be an umbrella for so many other species and, and in addition to hunters if we have good sagebrush habitat we can hunt sage grouse montana yeah. actually has a really fantastic sage grouse season it's the entire month of september um and uh you know there i i've i've hunted i've shot one in my lifetime um it tasted fabulous like if anyone says you know some sort of species is you know isn't good for eating like a sage grouse they say it tastes like sage uh, because of course that's what it <laughs> eats um but there's never never a bad piece of game meat there's only bad cooks that's right so yep. <laughs> i think they're they're a fantastic species i encourage hunting responsible kind of land management to make sure we can continue to do that because if we can hunt a species we also become the greatest advocates for that species and uh, uh i think you know montana wyoming has a season as season as well there are other states that have it so that's cool. um, if you have the opportunity i encourage you to go out and pursue them yeah and we shouldn't look at when a species is able to be hunted oftentimes people some people will say 
oh, this is a bad thing. Oh, no, this is the end of the world. Really, that's a fantastic sign because what biologists are saying is we have a surplus of these creatures. The carrying capacity for this particular species, we're above that carrying capacity. Um, and so when I see a new season open up, not that this is a new season for sage grouse, but when we do see a season on a specific species, that is a win. That's a win for conservation because the biologists have said this is doing so well that we need to actually limit the numbers and take those numbers down. So that's fantastic to know uh, for people. They should take a lot of heart in knowing that there's a season for sage grass now on top of the fact that you get to eat some dang good bird. Correct. And really hunting has minimal impact on uh, on sage-grouse populations. Yeah. They're, they're spread out in the sagebrush sea, even though, you know, when they get up, they seem like a turkey getting up <laughs> out of the middle of a pile of sagebrush. Um, it, it's shocking. It's alarming. If you've ever been antelope hunting uh, in the September archery season, it'll make you pee yourself. This <laughs> giant, almost turkey-sized bird gets out of the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it, it's their the degraded habitat is what really does damage on the population. Right. Yeah. Is there any other projects you think the listeners would be interested in knowing about that you guys are working on? So uh, another initiative that uh, the Intermountain West Joint Venture is uh, doing is focused on wetlands. Um, mm. There's two initiatives. There's one in southern Oregon, northeastern California, and uh, there's another called the Water 4 initiative. But really it's looking at wetland habitats and how functional, n- and not just wetlands where there's standing water, wetlands where there's wet meadows, where, you know, we've, we've talked about about a lot how uh, people settle the West around water and those are the best habitats for wildlife. That's where they get so much of their food resources and life cycle needs. So the other initiatives that the joint venture has are focused on wetlands specifically and um, we kind of organize our staff around those two initiatives. So uh, we've got kind of half of our staff focused on that and then I'm in the side that's focused on the sagebrush and um, that kind of it fits uh, my passions for sagebrush country, sagebrush wildlife, sagebrush recreation. Um, so I love being able to kind of dive into the weeds of the nitty gritty on, on sagebrush conservation and what we can be doing as a conservation and a public community to protect those places. That's awesome. Yeah. So if people want to get involved with you guys, like how can, how can I, how can I, as someone who is just learning about your organization, get involved and help out? What do you look, what do you need? So we need help with our communications. Okay. So, so like I said, I'm the communication specialist and I'm, I'm asking for help. We, we talk to a lot of kind of internal audiences, but um, what I try to do is I try to break down kind of the science, what our science guys are producing about needs for sagebrush conservation and how land can be managed most efficiently for all the user groups. I need help amplifying that. So mm. our website where we publish this sort of stuff is Partners in the Sage com and that has resources about where things are working good um, science that latest science kind of the new c- super fascinating stuff that shows one of our recent science papers showed that if you remove conifers sage grouse populations actually can increase what we found with so much of our management practices is if if we're doing uh, really good sagebrush conservation we can get populations to stabilize but there are actually some that we've now had recent science to show that if 
you if you can remove invasive conifers from the right places, you can actually get sage grouse populations to come back. So that was produced by the Sage Grouse Initiative. We share that through our website. We do something called uh, we do science breakdowns. Um, the joint venture does Intermountain Insights. The Sage Grouse Initiative does Science to Solutions. So it's trying to take those big, deep science products and make them understandable, make them available to the public in ways that they can absorb and understand what we're trying to say. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. So where should folks reach out to you if they feel like they can lend a hand and get involved? Yeah. My email is hannah.nikonow, N-I-K-O-N-O-W at iwjv.org. Reach out directly to me. I'm on the websites. Like I'd love to hear what you're doing, what you're interested in, kind of your stories. I'm, you know, I want to be, help people be storytellers to, to get your story out about, you know, what, why healthy sagebrush is important to all sorts of users, to, you know, the recreators, the hunters, the bird watchers, the bikers, um, you know, the ranchers the people that are truly invested in this super unique ecosystem. I love to talk about sagebrush as uh, a rainforest in miniature. Like it's just, you know, it's it's sometimes seen as flyover country, but if you've ever sat there after a failed antelope stalk (laughs) and, you know, you're just sweating, it's hot, and there's just that pungent sage is all around you, and you look through the sagebrush um, branches, you can just see how detailed and intricate that that forest of sage is so i want i want more more kind of stories like like that one of mine that i can i can broadcast out there and try to get people to understand why this place is totally worth fighting for that's awesome well man i just i want to recognize you for a second you're so passionate you're so excited about this and what i love about it is your story of transitioning from a field outside of conservation into conservation mirrors mine. I didn't start out in conservation and I transitioned to where I am now working in conservation. And so it's super exciting to see other people bringing their unique views into conservation. So thank you. Thank you for doing that uh, for everything that you do. I have a couple questions for you before we end. This is the the part. Yeah, this is the part where we deviate a little bit away from conservation, just a little bit and uh, ask some, some fun questions because I think we can learn a lot from each other. Um, the first thing I want to ask you is what is a, a mistake or a myth that you used to believe and now reject? Makes me think of ranching. Mm, okay. And how, you know, we are public landowners. We are the taxpayers that have, you know, the greatest estate in the world of yeah. all these public lands. And there are ranchers that come and graze those lands. And, you know, they pay per their AMU, their animal management unit. Um, They pay to graze those places, but you know, there's always places where grazing doesn't look great sometimes, or you see cows in the stream as you're trying to filter water. But um, I heard a great quote recently that um, the worst managed ranch is better than a subdivision. Mm. And there are a lot of ways in which ranching can be fantastic on a landscape. There are a lot of places where, you know, 
cows are replicating the way that bison used to move across our landscape and uh, particularly our prairies and our sagebrush steppe they need that sort of disturbance because if you allow all those grasses if you allow that th that sagebrush to grow up and become decadent that that opens room for disease that pinches out you know sage grouse chicks need that grass they need that little green grass and if you don't have something coming in and clipping down the dead stuff to make that that green stuff available that super good resource then you know they're going to lose population so my my misconception was ranching is bad for public lands and it's like that is totally not the case there are amazing ranchers there are amazing land managers that you know have figured out how to to graze sagebrush yes. and graze sagebrush country and so we need those people on the landscape keeping it uh grass up not not roots up absolutely yeah who's your favorite avenger I am not a uh, comic book, <laughs> pop culture, reading, uh, absorbing person, okay. so I cannot answer that question. I wouldn't know what it would <laughs> Do you have a favorite superhero? Um, no is a perfectly acceptable answer, too. <laughs> well, I was just recently watching the uh, Batman movies Oh. created by... Um, Nolan? No, Crichton. Oh, uh, yeah. No, um, um, who does... Who um, Oh, the original the ones. Original, yeah. yeah. Uh, like with Catwoman. Yeah, she those were good. She is so dark. She is so misunderstood. Mm -hmm. And even when you think she's going to do something right, she, like, doesn't. Yeah. And I kind of love that dark, not perfect character i know who you're talking about and it's gonna bug me he was the same one that did nightmare before christmas yes, yes. and okay so yeah, same exactly okay um yeah Failing on our pop culture knowledge. i know it's so bad i should have uh planned for that pancakes or waffles waffles when they're like super crispy but savory with like bacon and brie and avocado Ooh. they make a sandwich in the missoula farmer's market that's like pretty that. phenomenal that's cool if you ever come through helena there's a place um, and I'm now blanking on the name of it, but they do waffles. Uh, there used to be the, they call it the waffle wagon and yep. she opened up a space. Uh, it's so good. And okay, so we'll yeah, that up next good time waffles, I'm going fishing. chicken and waffles. If you were to just pop open your phone right mm -hmm. now, what would be your most played song or your uh, iPod or whatever, wherever you play your music? I am a sucker for, uh, Latin. So, uh, nice. Latino, uh, rap. So it's called a reggaeton. I so love reggaeton. That's, that's awesome. That's my, like, yeah, just kind of, uh, just, y you know, it's nothing um, classic at all <laughs> about it. It's, you know, not particularly feminist, but I love those basic Latino beats. There's some good stuff <laughs> out there. Yeah, definitely. All right. And final question I have for you. What's your definition of happiness? Public lands. Being able to walk out the door and walk until I'm exhausted and be in a beautiful place with my hunting dog and uh, that's happiness. Yeah. Hannah, thank you so much for coming on. It was a real pleasure to get to know you. <laughs> and this is so fun. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, we'll have to do it again. I'd love to hear more about your f projects that you have going on in the future. So everybody, the links for everything we talked about are going to be in the show notes. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.